Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. If he can draw some connection between Labor's target going through Parliament and energy prices, if they remain high, then there could be some votes to be won from the you know hundred dollar roast style scaremongering that we all hope was was killed by the twenty twenty two election. Hello, lovely Potters. You're on Australian Politics. I'm Catherine Murphy and with me is... Amy Ramakis. Josh Butler. And Paul Karp. And... We we are answering your Ospol questions. (laughs) If you are a newcomer to the show, you'll wonder what on earth has just happened with that Wiggles introduction. If you are a regular, you will know that during the recent election campaign, the team put together a bunch of episodes where we answered your campaign questions. And... We love doing these episodes so much and you love them so much that uh, they will be a regular part of Australian politics. And given that we are now very close to the resumption, well, not the resumption, the opening. Mm. Guns and pomp and privilege. All kinds of business going down. The opening of the 47th Parliament uh, and also because we've been in a hectic transition for the last six weeks, we knew you guys would have a bunch of questions, and of course you do. So today we're going to start with Gary Scarlett, Amy, who is uh, very interested in theories regarding how Albo will run his new look parliament and how he might do things differently. That's in air quotes. Uh, How will the internal discipline work? What will good look like? And how will the Labor Party be more inclusive in parliament? That is a very interesting question, and it's one that I think we're going to have to wait for some history to show us before um, we can actually answer it uh, completely. I mean, Anthony Albanese has said uh, pretty much from the beginning that he does want to be a more consultative leader, that he doesn't want it to be a one-man show, that he does want to count on his team a lot more than what we have seen with some previous governments, uh, and he has already you know, mentioned that when it's come to the floods and the natural disasters that we're seeing in in New South Wales, where he has deferred to his emergency management minister, Murray Watt. Part of the reason for that was, of course, because he was overseas, but it's also just part of what he has said is what he wants to do in this government. Whether that extends beyond his own team, I think, is something that will be very interesting to play out. Obviously, Labor does not hold the balance it needs in the Senate to be able to pass legislation without doing some sort of negotiation. And you would think to have things passed in the Senate, you would have to talk and consult with the peoples whose votes you need, or at least their parties or representatives 
in the House as well, which would mean having a pretty open dialogue with the Greens and some of the more progressive independents uh, in the Senate as well, just to get it across the line. So I think we are going to see a lot more dancing behind the scenes than we have seen recently um, from the Morrison government. I, but um, Anthony Albanese also uh, was pretty much the deal maker in your favourite parliament, mm, Murph. 43, um, 43. When, when they did actually need the votes of independents, not the case now in the House, but it is in the Senate. So I think he's got some groundwork there. And just to that question, there's another couple of related questions that I'm going to put to Amy in a tick. That was a great summary. But what do we think about internal discipline? in the government in the event that the new Prime Minister feels as though he has to sort of sprinkle the peace, love and harmony around the joint? How do we think that'll go down with Joe Backbencher in office uh, G59? I found it interesting during the Staffergate stuff with the independents and their staffing allocation that he sort of did give quite a big shout out to a couple of those backbenchers, like in, in some answers, like, you know, he was asked, you know, why are you dropping these staff requirements? And he going, oh, you know, Josh Burns does such a good job. And he then dropped a few other, other ones. And, and it was put to me by someone that it was sort of in that sort of vein. Like mm. it, there was, it was very much because of, you know, trying to keep some of those backbenchers on side. I mean, like you, you look at the numbers, like they've got a majority in the house, but like They've got 77. So, like, all they really need is, like, one unruly backbencher or one by-election or something like that, and that's sort of in sort of chaos territory again. So, um, yeah, that's, that's very yeah, interesting. That's, that's the point. I was kind of like that king-making dynamic in close parliaments. Yeah, the, the independents, you know, say that they need those extra advisors because they have to scrutinise every piece of legislation. But the reason the staffing issue is so tricky for the government is that the government and Anthony Albanese genuinely think that it's, it's a rort and that it's unfair and that comparison between a government backbencher and an independent MP they think is is a source of unfairness that some constituents will be better served because their member has more staff so that they are trying to correct it. But there are some positive signs about cooperation more generally. Tony Burke is... um, working with the independents to improve the rules for the House of Representatives. We're going to see more questions from the crossbench in question time and an improved process to guarantee that there are votes on private members' bills if they pass a a bill selection committee. So there are going to be ways that the crossbench have input into um, decisions, even though, yes, the the, the first cut is the deepest in the case of the the staffing allocation. Yeah, Labor doesn't tend to do kingmaker backbench is quite like, you know, what we've seen from the coalition. We don't tend to see that. And that's usually because if you part of caucus rules, you're going against the party, you're actually out of the party completely. Uh, But also, I think that this is an opposition that has people who were in government and then lost it because of ill-discipline, uh, people who have just spent time in opposition when they thought that they were coming into an incoming government in 2019. And so far, the mood within the Labor Party seems to be, don't screw this up. Yes. Don't whatever, mess it. Whatever, Stay disciplined. Whatever we do. And related to those two things, uh, that's it's a really good point about caucus, Amy. So related from SD Bennett to Paul's point and Josh's point about this whole fracas about the independence and staffing, right? What do you make of it? 
basically, is the question uh, from SD Bennett. Uh, is, is this really an issue? And also, will the Federal Integrity Commission become a reality? I know Paul have a perspective on that. Related also from Dale Adams, the thinking throughout the campaign was about the Teals, that basically kind of they're the Australian Democrats reboot, right, in that they're effectively moderate libs. So what do you think about Dale's kind of comparison to the Democrats and then let's think about the staffing issue? I think the comparison to the Democrats is quite interesting. Uh, Obviously, the Democrats were a party with a little bit more freedom in terms of how they express their views as independent or individual members, whereas we're dealing with, you know, a crossbench of 10 of of actual independence and they're not going to always agree on things. But because of the tightness of the parliament and because of the message that was sent by the majority of the electorate at the last election, they also can't be ignored on terms of the issues that they stood on, which were climate and integrity. And I think that they are going to drive a conversation on both of those issues that the government can't ignore. So not necessarily the same role as the Democrats in, you know, deciding if we're going to have some giant policy change in Australia, like we saw with the GST and and that sort of thing. But they are going to have a very big impact on the conversations that we have in the parliament, but also, I think, the electoral system more broadly, because I think both political parties, the majors, are very aware now that there is no such thing as a safe seat. They've both been hit by this. I mean, the the Greens did act as the Teals in Queensland, as Josh had previewed, you know, in some of his stories during the election campaign. And so you're going to have to pay attention to them if you're in power, because you might find if you don't, you're not going to be in power for as long as you'd like to. Probably a safe bet. Now, staff and the Integrity Commission. So we had a, we had a bit of a nibble at staff a minute ago. Josh, what do you think? Yeah, I just sort of quick on the on the, the Teals. Like, I, I think a lot of them don't even really like that term, the Teals, because they're not a party, obviously, and 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 for a actual like branding purpose, some of their colours won't even teal in their campaigns. But I'm actually quite interested in how some of them might try and differentiate themselves a little bit or stand out a bit once they all come back to Parliament. Like we know a bit about a couple of them, obviously, like you know, climate and integrity and and those sort of things. I'm interested to see what a, a few of them do to sort of stand out and not just be lumped in the teals bucket. The staffer thing is really interesting. And I think a few of these independents are hopeful that now that Anthony Albanese is back in the country that they might get some movement on it. They might end up with two staff or something rather than one or obviously not four or five. As Paul mentioned before, I mean, like, you know, they they do have to scrutinise bills and that sort of thing in a a different way than backbenchers do. Like these backbenchers just get told where to sit and when to turn up and sit here and a lot of them sometimes don't even know what they're voting on like if you're a government or a opposition backbencher so like you do have to have more scrutiny and more you know actually analyzing this stuff and seeing what it means like you don't have a whole opposition leaders unit or a whole you know prime minister's unit or whatever to tell you the pros and cons and give you lines and give you talking points and that sort of thing so for the regular person i don't think anyone really cares much about this issue like it's not lighting up conversations in pubs and that sort of thing but when you come down to it of like a lot of these independents were voted in on the idea of you know giving back to their communities and upholding democracy and holding people to account and all that sort of thing so like i think a lot of them would rightly be aggrieved that the first thing that they've had to deal with the new government on is cutting their ability to do that. Mm -hmm. But as Paul sort of mentioned, I mean, like a lot of government or opposition backbenchers will be quite shirty that they don't have eight staff as well. So I can see sort of both sides of this. I'm not sure where it'll land. I'm sure it'll end up with 
you know, two staff rather than one or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I there's think that's also, a safe bet, actually, yeah. I reckon. There's mm. also the issue of how the increases in staff happened. I mean, like, the independents were given more staff uh, when Julia Banks crossed, uh, you know, originally to try and, like, keep them sweet in case the coalition needed them at the time. Uh, and Craig then Kelly, too. Craig I think. Kelly, and yeah. then we saw another increase in staff. So it wasn't necessarily that they started with X amount and then it was, you know, completely wiped out by the incoming government. It, it's been gradually increased for previous government's benefits. Uh, And there is the issue of whether, you know, independents or crossbenchers should have more staff than an assistant minister, for instance, Mm -hmm. as well, uh, given the amount of work that they have to do. Really, I think the answer is probably unpalatable to most people. It's give everyone more staff because Mm. Parliament is really important and the work they do here is very important and we shouldn't be encouraging this culture of overwork with staffers and we all know staffers, you know, who have faced burnout and we know what the Jenkins Review said about the amount of work that staffers have to go through and the climate and culture that that can cause. Give everyone more staff to do their job. But also if we're going to start talking about, you know, staff in the public service, we really need to start addressing Centrelink and passport offices and mm. aged care yeah. and things like that. Sort of trickles all the yeah. way down the system. Yeah, very good point. And Paul, the Integrity Commission. I'll, I'll answer on Democrats and Integrity Commission. Yep. On the Democrats, <laughs> I would say they seem to have a similar smaller liberal philosophy and be concerned with integrity. So there's that similarity with the Teals. The Democrats were a Senate party, so they're always looking to get, you know, eight, nine, ten percent of the vote and then jag the sixth Senate seat in every state. Yep. Whereas these people are representing particular electorates, particular communities. It's much harder to get elected in a, in a single member electorate than it is in, in the Senate where there's, you know, six senators up for re-election at a time. And so I think they've sort of cracked the code of consolidating the non-Liberal vote, the Labor, Green, Progressive vote and the chunk of voters that are disenchanted with the Liberals that Mm. normally vote for them. So there are similarities and differences. Uh, The Integrity Commission, I think, will sail through. I mean, Peter Dutton has um, said that that's one of the things that he wants to sort of get out of the the, the road uh, on. The crossbenchers are being consulted uh, by the Attorney-General at the moment. They've got about 80% of what they want out of it. People generally like it. What would be required to have some contest would be for the coalition and the Greens or the coalition and the rest of the crossbench to team up and pass amendments. But even then, you know, Labor could could stare them down by sending the same version back from the lower house. And at that point, I rate at zero the the chance that anyone will care so much about the the marginal improvements they're asking for to sink it. Mm, Interesting. Okay. Josh, you're up. We've got a question from Terry Francis. Hello, Terry. Will telehealth be reinstated? I've given you health questions this week because you've been lurking in that that environment. Uh, So will telehealth be reinstated? It needs to be, Terry says, especially with COVID peaking again. Also, importantly, it makes healthcare more accessible and it supports a model of early intervention. And then so related to that is a question from Jenny Richardson. Hi, Jenny. Uh, Who is advising the government about their response to the pandemic? Are they only listening to the same advisers as Morrison had? Given they rightly don't trust Liberal appointees, why would they continue using the same advisers when it comes to health in a pandemic? 
two the, good questions. They are, they are two good questions. On, on the telehealth one, I agree on all the points personally that the person has made there. It does increase accessibility and it's, you know, obviously this point about access and not having to go to the doctor physically during the COVID pandemic is a really, really good point. But the point to make is like telehealth still does exist. It's not been scrapped entirely. What they did, they made, and, and this whole thing is very complex and quite complicated. They changed access to a number of what they call Medicare, um, uh, you know, services, like Medicare items, essentially. So, like, you can still get telehealth for, you know, a range of services like GP, mental health and nurses and that sort of thing. But I think it's, from my understanding, it's essentially for shorter appointments. They've changed it so it's not as accessible for longer appointments. Um, and this is what, you know, the AMA and a bunch of the doctors groups have come out and said that it's no good for all the reasons the person there yeah. had made, yeah. saying that, accessibility is lower, like if you live in a rural area or something like that, or you are a person who has, um, you know, health conditions or immune conditions, you, you might not want to go to a doctor's surgery and wait there in, in the waiting room for two hours or something like that. But the point the current government made is that, well, for some of these more complex appointments, for a longer appointment, you might need to, or you might benefit from going to a doctor in person where they can actually see you face to face and all that sort of thing. As to whether it will come back, I mean, the new health minister, Mark Butler, has given no indication that it would. Mm. He's said no, essentially. Um, they, they made some sort of tinkering around the edges on like like enforcement of how many sessions doctors could give per month, all these very technical sort of things. But but no, it's not, it's not going to come back. And, and I think a lot of doctors' groups are rightly upset by it. Um, on, on the advising point, mm. um, when you think about who's still at the top of the health department, we've still got Brendan Murphy as the secretary. Um, Paul Kelly is still the chief medical officer. I, I found it was even quite interesting. We don't see much of him anymore, but the other week, when no, not long after Prime Minister Albanese got into government, posted a photo on his Twitter of him getting a briefing from Murphy and Kelly and uh, General Fruin, the, the, oh, the yes. boss of the, of the, course, the, the good. vaccine logistics. Where, where has General that's Fruin it, that's gone? It. You, don't, you don't see him much anymore. And I have to be corrected, I don't think I've seen... I don't think any of those three have given a press conference with either the Prime Minister or Mark Butler or anyone in the government since the government's changed. I mean, I'm not sure how much, how much you can read into that because Greg Hunt and Morrison didn't do many in the last sort of days of, yes. of the last government either. So maybe there's not a lot to be read into that. Mark Butler and I think Richard Miles have got a few questions on this in the last little while about mm. whether they'll keep the same people at the top of the health department or whether General Froome will be moved on. There was some report in the AFR a couple of weeks ago that General Frum would move to some army role somewhere right. else, like in the actually back in the sort of military rather than rather health than department. Rather than rolling out vaccines. Um, yeah, yep. Rather than rolling out vaccines. But um, look, uh, you know. And Mark, there's also Jane Holton too. Well, Jane Holton, yeah. Mm. I mean, she's back in the picture again running this review that Mark Butler's ordered. So it's sort of still the same people. I mean, they haven't changed them yet. I mean, obviously, yeah, the, the point that the person made about obviously they can't trust the Liberal appointees, I, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. Like, obviously, they've moved on a number of department secretaries and that sort of thing already. Um, they haven't moved on these health ones I mean, yet. We're still in a pandemic. It's still, it's still winter and maybe this is something that they might address once the winter period's over or something. But, mm. I mean, they've given no indication that they would yet. Miles mm. and, and, and Butler have said, oh, look, we've got no plans, but, you know, under consideration, that sort of thing. So, yeah, okay. And yeah. Paul, you've Ma got a thought? Ma Mark Butler calling a review into vaccine acquisition that's going to put Brendan Murphy's uh, decision uh, decisions, amongst others, you know, squarely in the frame. 
That that's a bit like the orchestra starting up at the Oscars <laughs> when they when the when the, the the victory speech is going for too long. Like they they can stay there they can stay there for a little longer and leave leave on their own terms. But it gets progressively harder, you know, as as the orchestra but it, but gets it, it, louder. It was this bizarre thing the other week when when they announced this task force and it was sort of like, well, are you going to be looking at the decisions that were made in purchasing and all these dramas about like whether we bought Pfizer at the wrong time and that sort of thing? And my partner said, oh no no no, it's going to be looking forward and it's not going to be looking backwards and we will have, you know, they'll do a Royal Commission at some point and all that sort of thing. But it was a strange sort of situation ended up where it was sort of like, yes, it will look back at what we did because we have to look at what we've got now in terms of vaccine stock. So it has yes. to look back a bit. Look back to go but forward. Yeah, it's, it's something like that. So there'll have to be something of like, well, did we buy the right vaccines at the right time and did we buy the right number for the right purposes and that sort of thing. So like, there has to be some sort of reflection on the decisions that were made and obviously who made the decisions that sort of thing. So I'm really interested in what that actually turns out to be. And even there's even some questions about well, why this this is like a very stock standard, bog standard health department bureaucrat stuff. Why do they have to do a whole outside independent review chaired by Jane Holt and can't the health department do this yeah. themselves? Yeah. And I can't remember exactly what Mark Butler's response was, but it was sort of like, well, and the questions were like, well, isn't this going to reflect badly on Brenda Murphy. Surely. So, yeah. I mean, who, who knows? Who knows? It just who knows? Like a very sort of interesting. It was, it was an interesting press conference, that one. Yeah. I hope that um, for Jenny, who asked the question, I hope sort of us disentangling all those elements sort of gives a bit more clarity. I totally agree with Josh's point that you can't just automatically assume that because people were appointed by the Liberal Party that they're unable to be trusted. It's, uh, you know, obviously, you know, these experts sort of served during the pandemic and et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, that that gives you an idea, Jenny, of some of the moving parts. And, and the changes in the public service uh, more generally have been quite moderate, right? They've yes. got rid of Gaitchens, they got rid of Catherine Campbell, but like I described it as the afternoon of the medium length knives yes, because the they didn't, knife. there was not a complete clear out of all the departmental secretaries and, you know, plenty of people people are still in a job. Well, yeah. well I guess, sorry, just mm-hmm. one last one on the advisor point. I mean, obviously, in Mark Butler's office, in the health minister's office, like, it's not just like he's swapped out desk with Greg Hunt and he's got the same people. And obviously, Mark Butler has his own yes. people and his own advisors and there's Indeed. Labor Party people in there and he's, you know, getting people from all over the joint. So, I mean, obviously, in that sense, like, it's not as though it's just Mark Butler is the new boss and he's presiding over Greg Hunt's office. But, um, even today when they announced the um, vaccine fourth dose change that was, you know, on the advice of Atagi and the whole way through Mark Butler keeps saying, oh, we're doing this on the advice of the health department and the chief um, medical officer. So, like, obviously still taking advice from the same people that yes. Scott Morrison was. So. Yeah, so I think, you know, what what's uh, it's deep, isn't it, continuity and change? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, moving on. So, Paul, you're up. We've got a couple uh, from Kylie Lee. Hi there. Kylie would really like to know why the new government does not enact a super profits tax. Many experts have signalled this as a sensible and reasonable approach. So that's the first one. And then from Dr. Can Behrens, <laughs> that's a Canberra joke, if uh, if you're outside of Canberra. Anyway, the person on Twitter, that's his handle. He's pretty interested in the future of the AAT, which, uh, which Paul, uh, I know, is extremely interested in. So uh, really, you know, what are the options? Is the new government going to burn it all down and start again or, or what's going to happen? Okay, so let's do the super profits tax first. 
I think it's just the answer is too much scar tissue from the Rudd government when they tried to introduce a mining super profits tax. Uh, when they did that, they had huge pushback from the Minerals Council with uh, advertisements that, you know, said, oh, when mining's strong, the Australian economy's strong. And that, that made it sound like if we tax profits that, you know, somehow jobs in the rest of the economy would be lost and mm. it would trigger a recession. But of course, the great thing about a super profits tax is it only gets levied when the companies are doing very well. When the commodities prices are very high and they're skimming extra off, that's when it operates, not when times are tough. So yes, I think if you're just looking at on pure policy terms about whether or not uh, having super profits uh, tax on gas exports, I, th I think it's a great idea. And the case is especially strong because, you know, some of these are foreign-owned companies that are large foreign government stake in these companies or sovereign wealth funds owning large stakes in these companies. Mm -hmm. So the case is very strong, some including the Greens, and I, I think Allegra Spender has said she's open to it, uh, but but it really hasn't got a lot of play because they'd be worried about re recalling the, the Rudd-Gillard government. And, and, you know, Gillard came in and, and, and promised to fix that policy by yeah. basically allowing so many deductions that it didn't co yeah, collect very much revenue. Useless, yeah, yeah so, so so I think they just don't want a repeat of that. I think that's absolutely right. But I would only add one point before we move on quickly to the AAT. The only area in which the new government has given itself room to move, revenue-wise, tax-wise, is in the area of multinational tax. There was a specific saving booked ahead of the election campaign, uh, basically from reducing multinational tax avoidance. I absolutely agree with Paul's assessment. I think the mining tax is the thing that is, you know, absolutely paralysing for them. Um, uh, but I think, though, the Treasurer has left himself a little bit of room to move to perhaps fine-tune at the edges, uh, and so it'll be interesting to see whether or not that pops up in the budget in October or even maybe the budget next May. So on to the AAT, my friend. What's happening? So the, the AAT is the body that conducts merits review of government decisions. So decisions on visas or refusing people welfare or their um, uh, NDIS disability insurance payments. And, you know, Labor's argued the problem is that it's just hideously stacked with lots and lots of former Liberal staffers and, and, and politicians and people that don't always uh, have legal qualifications, despite this being like a quasi-judicial uh, body. So, uh, you know, the, the Legal and Constitutional Committee, which was chaired by Labor's Kim Carr, has proposed disassembling uh, the AAT, uh, which <laughs> is a like polite... something out of Jurassic Park, you know, <laughs> that some great big, you know, pterodactyl or someone comes in and smashes it. Anyway, sorry. It's a polite way of saying, you know, sacking everyone and burning it down and starting again. There would still have to be a merits review body, so it's not really abolishing the AAT. It's, it's more just re replacing you know, replacing all its members um, and calling it something else. I think there are other less extreme options uh, on the table. You know, for example, you could require that people shock horror have law degrees if they want to, if they want to be on this body. Because the, the Callanan, uh, former High Court Judge Callanan, his review into this body found that, you know, some people were getting the library to write their judgments for them. Uh, you know, it was a problem to not have legally trained people on this body. Body. Oh, God, I'm so, sorry. We're not actually laughing, just to be clear. I mean, you can hear us laughing. I mean, it's not a laughing matter. Anyway, I, sorry, Paul. I, th yes. I think that would be a much uh, simpler way because you can... You can 
it, it gets rid of some of the worst examples of partisanship, but it, it's a pretty clear sort of threshold to, to set that if you haven't got a law degree, you know, and you're on this body, it's really supposed to only be in exceptional circumstances like someone like that gets appointed. Yeah. I think that should be the threshold and tip everyone out that, that isn't completely qualified for it. Okay. But we have to find out more about the practical consequences of doing this. Like the, this, this car committee did not say, you know, whether we would have to pay compensation to all these people yeah, well, who were exactly. on, on five-year terms because it's not like anyone's guilty of misconduct or anything. It's just we're now raising the bar for what it takes to be on this body. If you boot everyone out, do you have to pay them five years of $400,000 or whatever? No, that ex- would make it like uh, quite unpalatable and, to do. And also, I don't know, I mean, look, you're actually, you have legal training unlike me, but I'd also have a question about what happens to previous judgments of a now defunct body. I mean, I, I just, I, I don't know whether there would be an actual impact on that. I mean, probably I think that, not, I think, but I think they'd still be, be okay. safe. Yeah, right. It's just the mula. You're not, you're not an unperson. You're just, <laughs> you're, you're just, you're just no longer, uh, you know, earning a six-figure salary. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, we'll watch that space. Now, we'll just end on three sort of related questions, which we're all going to get into, really. David Lamb asks, given the en masse loss of moderate liberals at the recent election and the influx of more progressive, independent and even Green members, why does the Dutton LNP seem committed to moving further right and importing US-style culture wars? Do they think that that's a winner for them in three years? Obviously, well, there is both a question and a comment, David, but we'll, we'll deal with it. A related question from Heather, just in terms of Dutton's agenda, given the climate disasters we've faced recently, and obviously, you know, if you're listening to us from a New South Wales flood zone, my God, you know, we we send you only good wishes. It's just absolutely horrendous. So given that environment, will the opposition really push against the government's emissions targets? Will they decide the election was a signal that they need to step up and support real action on climate or will they default to their old position? And then also related from James Radvin, is Dutton a Brendan Nelson 2.0 holding pattern? for the opposition or a legitimate contender. Now, if you're a young person, and I know lots of people, young folks listen to this pod, just a little bit of explanation about (laughs) Brendan Nelson because it seems like several centuries ago, right? Brendan Nelson uh, took over the leadership of the Liberal Party sort of after the 2007 election. And I think, I can't remember exactly how long he lasted, perhaps 12 months, I don't know. Anyway, he was cleaned up by Malcolm Turnbull, who was then cleaned up by Tony Abbott. Anyway, so that's the sort of, uh, just in case anyone listening to us had no idea who Brendan Nelson is, there we go. So what do we reckon? Josh, why don't you kick off? Culture Wars one. Um, I mean, it's been, what, six weeks of the Dutton LMP opposition. Um, I don't know how settled or whatever they are or committed or whatever the, ter- the term was that the, the, the poster used there of, of, of doing anything at this stage. But um, the Culture Wars thing's really interesting. I mean, obviously there was an attempt through the last election around um, trans women in sport. Yep. Um, that didn't really take off, even though it dominated the airwaves and the media for a very long time. It didn't really take off, I think, because it doesn't really have a lot of resonance here to the extent that it has in the US. But, like, more broadly, this stuff sometimes does work. Yeah. And it is working in the US. I mean, a lot of this stuff gets imported to Australia. And I say imported, you know, specifically 
imported down this pipeline of, you know, right-wing media mm. and Fox News and Sky no, News and all exactly this sort of stuff. Right like like yeah. some of these yeah. late-night Sky News shows are carbon copies of what you see on Fox mm. News. Well, they're Political Fox, correctness yeah. gone mad and woke Fox lefties and yeah. drag queens and all that sort of stuff. Like I'm really interested in Dutton sort of early signalling that he's going to make a big deal out of education and the mm. curriculum. Mm. Um, that has been a culture war that's been like a favourite of some of the Murdoch tabloids for quite a while here, like for many years. Yep. But I'm really interested to see what Dutton does mm-hmm. with it and how much they sort of supercharge that. Um, and the shadow education minister is Alan Tudge. Mm. And, um, I think that's a fascinating who little, has, little who has been found as well. Who was lost and has now been has found. Been found yeah. Yes, yes. Paul, what about your? What about the climate? issue? I mean, obviously, weigh in as you see fit. Well, I mean, I think it would be rational to accept that voters wanted higher climate ambition and, and to pass it, but but the indications at the moment are that the uh, the imperative of just sort of holding his own show together might trump that and they, they, they default to a Tony Abbott style, oppose everything that moves uh, type opposition. And it, it also allows them to run what I think are quite specious arguments about electricity prices because, you know, of course, it's at higher fossil fuel prices and poor reliability amongst fossil fuels that are driving the current price spike, but mm. people won't necessarily uh, understand that. And if he can draw some connection between Labor's target going through Parliament and, and energy prices, if they remain high, then there could be, sadly, some votes to be won from the, you know, $100 roast-style mm. scaremonger that we all hope was was killed by the 2022 election. Mm. I mean, more broadly in, in terms of why is he moving further to the right, I think most of their messaging is going to be about the economy. You know, inflation is out of control, electricity prices, where for lower taxes, skill shortages. Because I think that appeals to both the regions in the outer suburbs, but also to the, um, the, the metro seats that the Teals won. So that's where most of his appeal will be. And yes, he does seem to be throwing throwing some red meat to the base on education culture wars. I think this might be because he he has a sort of two-term strategy in mind where if he can shake, you know, six or so seats off Labor by those two prongs, the, 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 the economy and a few culture war issues, they may not win any of the teal seats back this time, yeah. but if Labor is in minority and is supported by the independents, then I think they're hoping that there's just this revolt against those people who are in normally Liberal-held seats that, you know, how can you support a Labor Prime Minister and maybe they'll get them back next time. Yeah, I think that's the thing to bear in mind because obviously everybody watching the 2022 election uh, would would know. Obviously, it's extremely difficult now for the Liberal and National parties to get back to majority government given the extent of their losses in 2022. But it is pretty easy on the current electoral numbers to push Labor into a minority government after the next federal election, which, as Paul says, then creates a different sort of governance dynamic in Parliament. And if we think back to the 43rd, my favourite Parliament, sadly not everybody in Australia's favourite Parliament. So I think that's an important thing for folks listening to have in the back of their mind in terms of electoral mathematics looking forward. And it might make a little bit more sense of what Peter Dutton is doing at the moment at, at, a, at a crude political level, you know, not because he's, you know, a Nobel Prize winning scholar who's going to save the world from itself just in terms of that crude 
political calculation. So last thing is, do we think he'll last? Oh, the Brendan Nelson one. Yeah. See, I, I think that's a that's a good point to make as well. Like, he's only been in the, the job for six weeks. And I think people sort of forget as well that no one sort of takes these jobs very well in the first six weeks. Like, Anthony Albanese didn't do a fantastic job as opposition leader when he first came in. Like, he wasn't yep. greatly polished. Like, they swung on a lot of stuff in the early days that they probably wouldn't have swung out if they had the time again, like picking battles and figuring out who your, you know, what your strategy is and where the, you know, new government will mess up or whether, you know, where their weaknesses are and that sort of thing. Like I think everyone is sort of just waiting until parliament starts again to try and that's sort of the official start of things, isn't it really? Like to once parliament's back on and people are back in on deck and everyone's got their offices set up and everyone sort of knows what their job is again. Like this is a weird little period where half the parliament's on holidays or got COVID or something like yeah. that. Like no yeah. one's really, obviously the, the, the new government, new ministers are working very hard and, and all that sort of stuff granted, but like Peter Sutton's literally on holidays at the moment. Like yeah. he's literally on leave. The best thing about this period, and they're, they're, they're small, like the windows for the period that we're in are small and they only tend to roll around in Australia every sort of, well, certainly usually no sooner than six years and, and mostly more like 10 years. So you can forget what these transitions look like, right? There is a period of time, and if you, you know, if you look closely at politics at the moment, what you see is a former opposition learning to be a government and government in reverse. And so it's it's really quite interesting. It's sort of like looking at, you know, little chickens pop out of their eggs and stagger around the place. It's really, anyway, but it's fleeting because everybody learns it pretty fast, right? These people have been around a long time. They know how to do politics. They might drive us mad, but they know what they're doing. So, yeah, this is always a really fascinating fascinating few months just in that crossover that yeah, happened. And for the opposition as well, I mean, like I, I didn't, the number of like former opposition staffers that you, or, you know, just, you know, former government now opposition staffers who, you know, you'd see them walk around before and their phones like clamped to their ear 23 hours a day and they're going bald, and they're going grey and they look like they've never slept. And you see them walking around now and they're like glowing, like yeah. they look like they got a tan, like, oh, I've been on holiday for six weeks. Yeah. I'm not even sure if I'll come back to government yet. Oh, I've got all these offers in the private sector. Like, yeah. So all these people are like transitioning in and out of politics. So all these very experienced staffers who, you know, while they're around for three or six years of the last government are either on holiday or, you know, getting way better paid jobs, doing half the amount of work in a way nicer place than Canberra, mm. or they're, and, and the offices of, you know, big time former ministers, now shadow ministers are filled up by not very experienced staff. Yeah, so, like, it's it's yeah. this little weird transition period yeah. where I think everyone's just figuring things out. Yeah, it's sort of interesting too. I, so Paul, I know, has something and I will absolutely stop yabbering in a sec. But there is that system in America, actually, which is sort of, you know, where, where's that, you know, there's those several months of transition, like three months of transition between, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, the, the president yeah. wins and then there is an actual managed handover that's sort of in the, embedded in their institutional arrangements. And, you can sort of see why that's actually quite a good idea, really. Well, yeah. Rather than except Trump officials famously oh, no, didn't, no, didn't, no. didn't turn up. Like everyone <laughs> no, in the energy no, department no, no, was no, waiting for them, no, and just no, no one no, came. No. Well, yeah. obviously, you know, there were a few things that went a bit haywire with the recent transition of power. But anyway, I'm just no, making no, that no as a general point. No, no, definitely no insurrection. Paul, I cut you off. Love, what were you going to say? Oh well, I, I mean, Brendan Nelson didn't even get to face an election, yes. did he? So no, he I didn't. mean, Peter no. Dutton won't be a Brendan Nelson because he'll at least face the next election. 
election. I mean, he nobody contested the leadership because Josh Frydenberg uh, lost his seat. Yeah. So Peter Dutton sort of had it all to himself. There yeah. are, you know, hardly any moderates left in, in Parliament because so many of them have lost. You know, ScoMo's faction is also, you know, denuded of any power and he's the sort of undisputed leader of the Conservatives. So mm. he'll at least get to face one election mm. and then it just depends how he does. If he gets a swing to him, he might be like Bill Shorten and get to face two elections, mm. which is quite rare for opposition leaders yep. these days. And, you know, if they get their ass handed to them, then maybe they'll be in search of other solutions yes. at that point. And maybe if there's a bit of a turnover too at the next election, the Liberal Party might have a few more options or at least a better distribution of numbers because the reason, as Paul's saying, that Peter Dutton is there is that Peter Dutton has the numbers. No one else does. Pe- people joked in, you know, 2007 that the next Liberal Prime Minister, you know, was probably at schoolies that weekend, yeah. like it would be like an you know, 18-year-old or something. But, you know, could could be Andrew Hastie or something in 2025 or, or someone okay. that's already there, but yeah. it just needs the dynamic to change when people get to give a bit of feedback on Dutton at the next election. No, exactly, exactly. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you to my wonderful team, as always. Just a quick note, we obviously didn't kill Amy or put her in a cupboard. Sadly, uh, she wasn't available to be here for the whole uh, recording with us. So just in case you're wondering... What, we're already in a cupboard, so <laughs> where, like, where would we... Where, Amy, where, Amy would, cupboard, where yeah. would we put her? Yes, Amy read for the door, yeah. So in case you're worried about her, I'm just saying, because I know she's very, very loved, as is the rest of the team, and you can hear why because they're fabulous. Thank you to Miles Martignoni who is the EP of this show. Thank you to you guys for listening. Um, when's Parliament back? It's not next week, it's the week after, isn't July. it? 20 years. How many, so how many weeks is that? I just don't have the two, day. Anyway. Two, two more weeks. Two, two more weeks. Yeah, yeah, anyway, yes, yes. So anyway, we'll be back next week. Parliament's not quite there but almost uh, take care of you. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.